0: with me to uh, Hosea chapter 6 as we continue making our way through this very encouraging little book. This evening we will be looking especially at verses 1 through 10 of Hosea chapter 6 verse 11 probably turns the corner into chapter 7. So we'll be looking at Hosea chapter 6, uh, verses 1 through 10. And I I think we'll begin reading in chapter 5, verse 15, to pick up the context there. This is God's word uh, recorded and preserved for you, his people. Let's give attention to it now. I will return again to my place. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evil-doers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your blessed word. Thank you so much for causing us to understand it. Thank you for giving us a love for it. We ask now as we consider these words tonight, you would continue to grow us as your dear children. Give us wisdom. Give us understanding. Enable us to live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Well, one of the things that uh, a child learns as he or she gets a a learner's permit and then a driver's license, and then ultimately gains a little bit of comfort behind the wheel as they gradually learn that they can go a little bit faster and a little bit faster and a little bit faster, little bit faster on the highway. And the comfort level's there, the music goes up, and they're having a great time until suddenly they discover one other little joy of driving uh, the speed trap. And suddenly, lessons are learned, wisdom is gained, that you can't just speed everywhere you want to go. You need a radar detector, I guess, as we used to have and invest in. Um, Those lessons are learned. And so for a little period of time, uh, they repent, and the foot comes off of the accelerator a little bit until some time goes by, and what happens? Well, suddenly the foot gets a little bit heavier again, and they go right back to driving the way that they did before. But we can be a little bit like that in our life with the Lord, can't we? We maybe lose our temper. We react harshly in anger to a loved one or maybe to a child, and then the Lord afflicts us. He causes us to feel guilty for the way that we responded. And so we repent. You, you go to your spouse, you go to your child, and you ask for forgiveness. You say, I did wrong. Please forgive me. And, and maybe the Lord in His kindness will uh, He'll discipline you a little bit in that period. Maybe your prayers grow cold for, for a little bit. Uh, you don't experience the nearness of the Lord in, uh, for a period of time and uh, you repent and the Lord restores you and again, a little bit of time goes by and what happens? Well, you're, you're tested and you lose your temper again. We don't want to be like that, do we? It's a sad thing that that's the way that we behave. We require God's rod to be upon us as a father. We experience his fatherly displeasure. We experience his discipline. But we don't want that to be the case. Instead, we want to be faithful to the Lord. And that's what God wants for you as well. He, He doesn't take any particular joy, I would say, in disciplining his people. What God takes joy in is when his people live faithfully for him. When you day by day cultivate a love for your heavenly Father and you, you live for Him, you restrain your temper, you, maybe you do take your foot off the pedal a little bit. Why? Because you love Him and you want to live for His glory. Well, one of the things that we see tonight as we look at Hosea chapter 6 is we're again seeing Israel and, and God is getting to the heart of the matter. He's showing us the issue with Israel's heart. And what we learn from this passage is that that God will afflict His children. He will discipline His children for a purpose, not for His entertainment, not for His pleasure, not because He is a sadistic God, but He will afflict us, He will discipline us, why? To lead us to repentance And so that we will find in him faithfulness and mercy, and he will teach us to live for him with a heart of love. I want to take just a moment to remind you that as we work through Hosea, what, what is the purpose of books like Hosea and Joel and Amos and Obadiah and all the rest? Why did God cause these to be written down? The message can sometimes be really, really sour, can't it? That we've, we've probably used the word whoredom over the past uh, month or so m- more than we did in our whole lives. Uh, it, they're not pleasant things that we read uh, in the book of Hosea, but they're written down for our instruction. And, and just remember this that when you read through the historical books, what, what the Jews would have called the early prophets, Uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, uh, not Chronicles, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, you're learning how Israel fell, how Israel was disciplined. When you read the prophets, the prophets are telling you why. That's how all of these work together. So the early prophets telling you how, and the latter prophets telling you why. And so as we come to uh, Hosea chapter six, and, and Hosea as a whole, we are finding that God sees Himself as Israel's husband. It's it's not a cold relationship. God is not uh, the Redeemer who brings His people out of Egypt and then uh, goes back to His place. But God is a Redeemer who is like a husband who who wants to live near His people, who, who wants to provide for His people, who wants to protect His people. But there are stipulations, aren't there? Just like any husband and wife relationship, there is faithfulness required on both parts. Israel were to keep the covenant commandments. They had to live according to God's law. Both moral law, keeping the moral law, the Ten Commandments, but they also had to be faithful to the sacrifices. And what we find is that Israel didn't. They didn't. As soon as they could turn away, as soon as they could go visiting at some other man's home, they did. And our hearts should break. Your heart should break as you read these pages. Why? Because they sinned, yes. But you also see, you see God's love for them and you, you think he, he wants to love you. He wants to protect you. He wants to provide for you. He wants to, to draw you in. He wants to give you every good gift. He wants you to drink from cisterns that you didn't drink. He wants to, you to live in homes that you didn't build. He wants you to eat from vineyards that you didn't plant. He wants to give you all of these things. And yet you turned away. He said, no, we will worship Baal. We will go after the Ashtaroth, And you are unfaithful. And so the lesson for us is, well, I don't want to be like that. God has profoundly demonstrated his love for us in Christ Jesus. I want to live for him because of that. In response to his love, I want to love him. And so there's a warning as well as we think of all of this that, that here you are on these pages... We, we often sing, don't we? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And this should break our hearts too, that on these pages I see my own sin. I see my own tendency to wander away from the Lord, to see something shiny over here, that, that I want that, and I go after it without even thinking for a moment if God wants that for me. So the first thing that we, we think about, the first point that we'll take away from this passage of Scripture in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, is that God sometimes will afflict His people for the purpose of drawing them back to Him in repentance. We closed out chapter 15 reflecting on how God said in verse 14, I'm going to tear you. I'm going to be like a lion, okay? I'm going to come after you. I'm going to tear you my... my, my uh, My jaws and my claws are going to harm you. They're going to hurt you. And as we turn the corner then in verse 1 of chapter 6, we see Israel responding to God's affliction, responding to the hardship that God had brought upon them, perhaps corporately, maybe a famine or a loss in battle, has caused them to say, we've sinned against the Lord. We need to return. But notice what they do that is faithful here. Come, let us return to the Lord, <coughs> for he has torn us, that he may heal us. You see, you see how they, they, as God's people, they associate even the hardship in their lives with God's hand. I think we struggled with that a little bit over the last two years. COVID especially, I think, revealed a weakness in the church. Sometimes we, we say that all bad things in my life are from the devil. All good things in my life are from God. That's a bad theology. Israel here, they say, God has torn us. God has torn us. He is the one who disciplines us. He is the one who has brought this harm in our lives. But the blessing of acknowledging that is this that no hardship you endure in your life is meaningless there is no hardship you endure that is meaningless the devil's not just toying you with you like a cat and a ball of yarn God is using the afflictions in your life to bring you to your senses sometimes, to remind you that, that, look, uh, you you are in sin. You need my discipline. You need correction. You need to to remember that you're a finite human being. You are not infallible. And Israel took this lesson, and seemingly they returned to the Lord. This was the purpose of their affliction. But notice again in verse 2, after two days He will revive us. On the third day He will raise us up that we may live before Him. They had the expectation, didn't they? That when they return to the Lord in repentance, how would they be greeted? Would they see a stern father standing at the door, uh, tapping on his watch saying, you didn't make it on time, you're going to have to sleep outside tonight. Now the anticipation of these folks is that when they return to the Lord, What's he going to do? He's going to bind the wounds that he caused. He's going to bind those wounds. He's going to be the one to put ointment upon them. He's going to be the one to bind them up. And not only that, but he's going to raise them up. We see in this passage maybe a a look forward, dimly a little bit, to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. There is the anticipation, even in Israel, that there will be some sort of life after death. And you and I, of course, recognize that this life after death is because Christ was raised up on the third day. For what purpose? Not that, so that God could go on chastising. Not so that you could go into some place called purgatory and, and carry out in the affliction of God until you've paid it up enough. No, so that you might live before Him. So that you might go on praising Him in the resurrection. Notice thirdly, here <coughs> let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. There's a return to the ultimate purpose we are coming back to our husband. We are coming back to the one who loves us. And we want to go on then being faithful to Him, growing an intimate knowledge with Him. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers. He's going to give us what we need. He's going to feed the earth so that the earth will feed us. You remember um, the back and forth that we looked at a few chapters ago that God would feed the earth and the earth would feed the people. What do we think about all of this? What do we learn from it? Well, in your life, you you are going to face, and you all know this, you are going to face periods, seasons in your life that are so hard that you feel like you cannot bear up under them. Uh, There will be seasons in your life where you cry out like the psalmist. Where are you? Like the psalmist, seasons of your life where you you feel as though your prayers are going nowhere. You feel as though God isn't listening to you. That He's withholding something from you. And there's a particular temptation in those seasons of life. A temptation to doubt God's goodness. Like Eve and the serpent. You think, well maybe God's not giving me everything that I ought to have. Instead, You ought to greet these seasons of your life with this perspective. You know what? I deserve this. In fact, if I'm really honest, I would say I deserve way, way worse than what I'm going through right now, especially as I look to the cross of Jesus Christ and I see that that is what I deserve. This doesn't even compare to that. I'm not here in this season of life saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's intention for you as His dear child is to lead you back to Himself. To give you, to remind you that you need seasons of introspection. You need seasons in which you examine your own heart, examine your own motives. Am I living for the Lord the way that I ought to do? Do I need to repent? I want to invite you to turn with me just for a second over to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, I'd like to read with you uh, verses 19 and following. <clears throat> Joshua has died at this point and Israel entered into a new season in their life. It's kind of a leaderless season. There, there wasn't a Joshua to rise up after Joshua. And, and this is because Israel's dispersed into all of their various territories, and I'm not going to read the whole thing here, but I I do want to pick out just uh, chapter 2, verse 19, to chapter 3, verse 1. But whenever the judge died, the judge would lead the people back, they would repent of their sin, Uh, the judge would die, they turned back, and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. Now I want you to notice these words. Why? Because he's mean? Because he doesn't love them anymore? No. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, the Philistines. You think of Goliath. Why is he there? To test Israel, to show them their hearts, not driving them out quickly. And he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left, here we are again, to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. He is teaching his people that they need to fight. You need to fight, you need to war. Your hands need to learn to fight. And for us, that's the the need. We we have to learn to fight against sin, to repent, and to come back to the Lord. So we learn then that God will at times afflict us to lead us back to Himself, to teach us to repent. But secondly, we see here that Israel's repentance was not all that it should have been, Israel's repentance was an empty. Repentance, notice verses 4 through 6. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Did you see something? As we read through the first 3 verses that might have indicated to us Israel's repentance was a little bit lacking. As you read through those verses again, notice that there is no confession of sin. At no place in those verses do they say we have wronged the Lord. We we need his forgiveness. There's no confession of sin. And so the Lord looks upon them. As a father, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? And what shall I do with you, O Judah? And here we remember that God's relationship with Israel is a different relationship. The way that He is carrying out this discipline of His people is unique. He's not doing this for Babel. He's not doing this for the Assyrians. For Israel... And Israel alone, his son, he disciplines his people to draw them back to himself. But notice what he says about them Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Israel is like that wife that wakes up with one man and goes to bed with another. They're not faithful, they don't love the Lord. Their love goes away like a morning cloud. You see it drifting across the sky. And as soon as the sun comes up, it burns it off. It's gone. It goes away. And so how does the Lord treat them? Well, He has hewn them. He has carved them, as it were. He has has hit them with the axe. Cut them down by the prophets. And this is why God has raised up Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Joel, and Amos, so that they could come to the people and cut them. They need to be cut. Their hearts are hard. They need the sharp blade to come in and pierce them even to the bone so that they will feel their pain and know their need of the Lord. But God does not cut them physically now. God cuts them by His Word. He leads with His Word. He comes to them with ample warning Listen Israel, my dear son, my children, Ephraim, leader of the north, Judah, leader of the south, hear me, repent, turn, here is what I want. I don't want you just to be faithful in the sacrifices. I don't want you to be able to go down your checklist and say, okay, I prayed, I read my Bible, I brought my lamb, I brought my bull, I brought my heifer, I've done all of these things, surely I am in the right, the good graces of the Lord. No, Israel, here is what I want. I want your steadfast love. You remember this morning we were reading from Psalm 136 in our our, uh, call to worship. And, and in that psalm, these words are repeated over and over and over and over. Your steadfast love endures forever. It's, this is one of those Hebrew words that you need to know. It's hesed. It, it can be translated as steadfast love, or it can be translated as covenant faithfulness. The two go together. If you're faithful to the Lord, you love Him. And if you love the Lord, you are faithful to Him. You keep all of the stipulations of the, of, the, of the covenant. What I want from you, Israel, I want you to know me. I want you to delight in my ways. I want you to know who I am. Stop going after the Baals and be faithful to me. Worship me alone and know my blessings. But Israel's love is not a faithful love. They did not give the Lord a steadfast love. Instead, what they gave Him was the love that was like the morning cloud. And so He visited them with His displeasure, with His judgment. Thirdly, lastly, we see that Israel are a covenant-breaking people. All of these overtures. You think about how many times Hosea must have been in their midst saying these words. Maybe going to the the temple where the uh, priests were gathered, where the elders in the town were gathered and saying, God wants steadfast love. God wants faithfulness. This is what He wants from the people. He wants you to tell them. He wants you to teach them His ways, His mercy. But no. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Let's stop here for just a second. As we go through the Old Testament, one of the things that we, we say is that the basis of God's relationship to His people is a covenant. And we will go to places like Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, and we will note there that God gave a stipulation to Adam. Uh, he put him in the midst of the garden, a beautiful cultivated garden, and He said, Adam, here are the three things. You keep my law. You, you observe the Sabbath day. You maintain faithfulness to one wife, and you work, you labor in that garden. And we define God's relationship to Adam before the fall as a covenant. And some people will say, well, we don't read the word covenant in Genesis chapter 2. How would you say that there's a covenant there? Well, all of the principles of a covenant are there. There's the promise of a blessing. If Adam had not eaten of that tree, what would have happened? Well, Adam would have been confirmed in his righteousness, and all of his posterity would have gone on living in righteousness. But the threat of death is there as well. The threat of curse. If Adam didn't obey the Lord, if he ate from that tree, what would happen? Adam would die. All of the principles of a covenant are there, and we have also this confirmation from Hosea 6, verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. Well, what covenant? What covenant did Adam transgress if it wasn't in the Garden of Eden? If it wasn't eating of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Adam broke God's covenant. And here, God likens Israel's transgression to the transgression of Adam. You have dealt faithlessly with me. Well, how did they do that? How had they broken God's covenant? Well, in this way. Gilead, Gilead's a city of evildoers, the whole city. It's tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man. So the priests, the priests, yes, yes, even the priests. Band together, they murder on the way to Shechem to commit villainy. What's, what's Shechem? Well, when, when, when the kingdom was divided, uh, Jeroboam set up his palace in Shechem, in Ephraim. Uh, this was the place of the palace of the northern kingdom, Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. So the, the priests are going there perhaps to, worship, to lead and worship, and what are they doing on the way? They're committing villainy. Can you believe that? The men of God, the Levites, the ones who are set apart to the service of God, are villains. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. God, We see this picture of God looking into the houses of His people, observing them in their private times, in their family worship perhaps. And going through the rooms in the family home and looking there on the mantle, and what do we find? A scroll, a Torah, phylacteries with the Shema written in them: Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. No. What they have on their mantle is another God. They are bowing down, they are praying, they are asking Baal to send rain upon their land, to make their marriages fruitful, to give them children. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. I want us to note one thing. As we think about the covenant that God made with Adam and the covenant that God made with the Lord Jesus Christ immediately after that, and we think about the context here in in Hosea and everything that's going on, we see two totally different covenants. Well, how so? Well, in this way, Adam could not repent. There was no chance for Adam to regain the blessing of the covenant of works that God made with him in that garden. The moment that he sinned, he was afflicted. He he died spiritually. His eyes were darkened. The glory that he once had was lost and he saw himself as naked. But in Christ, the covenant that God has made with Christ His Son that you enter into, that you benefit from through faith allows you to repent. It it heightens, it, it puts into perfect relief the grace and mercy of your Lord. He calls to you even now, repent, return to me. It's not too late, it's never too late. Even on your deathbed, I will hear you, I will receive you, I will meet you in mercy. Why? Because this covenant is a covenant of grace. And that's what we see on these pages. Unrepentant Israel is greeted by a Father who loves them, who will receive them. And so this evening, as you reflect on Hosea chapter 6, here is the picture that God would have you take away. He would say to you, my dear child, I want you always to know that my arms are open to you. That every time you come to me and you express your failings and your sins to me and you seek me and you seek my forgiveness, I will forgive you. Why? Because I have forgiven you in Christ. I have punished all your sins in Him. The opportunity is always available to you. But He still holds out to you this call and command. My child, what I want from you is not Your gifts, not Your tithes, not Your offerings, not Your promises, not Your vows. What I want from You is steadfast love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You. Thank You that Your command is love, not a tribute. We have none that we could offer that would suffice. You command love from us. Uh, Love that is defined in your moral law. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto you any graven image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. All of these teach us what it means to love you. O Lord, we pray, let us not be like Israel. Help us to be faithful to you. Not so that we can be redeemed, but because we are redeemed. Because Christ has fulfilled all of the stipulations of the covenant in our behalf. As an act of praise, O Lord, I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters gathered here tonight. That you would keep us in love. We pray in Jesus' name.